0: to How We Innovate Third Sector Talks, a new podcast exploring the future of the third sector. I'm your host, Marcel Speller, founder and chair of Brevio, the digital matchmaking platform for charities and funders. After a successful career in business, including founding Holiday Rentals in 1996 and selling it in 2005, I switched my focus to the third sector and founded Local Giving and now Brevio. I'm delighted to have you with us as I embark on talks with experts from across the charitable and funding sectors to hear how we can all innovate better. My first guest is Mary Lou Gawley of the Philanthropy Workshop, a network of over 450 global leaders and philanthropists committed to solving the world's most pressing social issues. I took part in a course of the Philanthropy Workshop back in 2008, which was fundamental to my journey in philanthropy. So it was really brilliant to catch up with Mary Lou. We talked about risk values and how philanthropists are changing their priorities to ensure real impact. But I started by asking Mary Lou to tell us more about the Philanthropy Workshop.
1: So the Philanthropy Workshop was originally set up, so 25 years ago, to really address what was broken in philanthropy. And what we are today is is a community of high and ultra high net worth individuals who share a very deep commitment to driving positive social change through trust based strategic philanthropy and social investing. And so our network is made up of a range of experience and expertise. Our members are all decision makers who are choosing to allocate their resources based on our core values, which really focus on challenge, equity, transparency, collaboration, impact and a deep commitment to continuous learning. And we take what we call a trust-based approach to strategic philanthropy and investing to contribute to building stronger and more resilient systems um, that can create ever greater impact in the world. So our members join us at any point in their life cycle of their philanthropic journey, um, whether that's coming to us, you know, a new looking for readily accessible expertise, the latest thinking around innovations and, and trends, Or really to use us as a platform to share thought leadership, bold ideas, and to advocate for some of the greatest best practice that's going on. And I think best practice needs to become common practice. And all too often, there isn't that opportunity for that um, information to be flowed back through to where it needs to get to.
0: Absolutely. And what, what do you think is the necessity of philanthropy, especially right now across the globe? Well, I think right now um, it's going to sound cliche, but there's truly never
1: been a greater and more urgent need for philanthropy to address the world's most intractable issues, but also the issues that we've really been hit with this year um, across humanity, whether that's COVID-19, climate change, the movement for racial equity, along with many, many other issues. And I think increasingly we're seeing a need to focus on precisely that intersection of where philanthropy can play a role alongside what's being done by government in business and with civil society so where is it that philanthropy can have um, a really additive effect and respond to the challenges that that we face and I think what we've seen in a, a particularly challenging year is that actually this year there's still been unprecedented wealth growth so figures show that last year so in 2019 There were 2,153 billionaires who controlled $8.7 trillion. This year, that's reached a record $10.2 trillion. So it's an increase of $1.5 trillion, um, looking at the figures that came out at the end of July. And so we know that not enough is being done. And I think what's critical to really enacting lasting social change is precisely timing. And the moment to respond is is now. And the role that philanthropy can really play is to think about how it can be bold, how it can be innovative, nimble and adaptable. And I think that's the greatest place that philanthropists can kind of come and, and play at, which is to really say, what does the world need from me? What can I do differently to get greater lasting impact? And also crucially for us as a community, how can I collaborate with others around me to do so more powerfully and to accelerate that impact?
0: Because I think the other thing that philanthropists could do, and I guess I've, I've done it myself, is to take risks because I've got much more, a much higher appetite for risk. because if it fails, you know, okay, I've lost my money, but I haven't got to sort of explain to any, anybody else, be it government or a charity or trustees or something, you know, why that went wrong. And maybe, maybe that's another thing that we can actually take risks that other players in this, you know, the civil society and 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 um, foundations and and government can't do. I couldn't agree more,
1: Marcel. Um, and it, it reminds me of so many conversations where we that we've had with different people. Well, inside our community and also outside our community who are for the first time actually asking themselves or the structures that they operate within to say, "Okay, we need to identify our risk appetite. And that almost needs to be one of the driving forces that helps us to kind of cut through. Right. What do we do? How do we do it? When do we do it? And I think you're absolutely right. I think some of the greatest breakthroughs are often made through seeing philanthropy as risk capital. And I think we, we see sometimes, you know, examples might be philanthropists seeding what seems like small ideas that might not work, um, that wouldn't be supported by larger foundations because precisely there is too much risk. And suddenly seeing some of those ideas take shape, be proven to, to be successful and to have impact. And suddenly, what started off as a small seed funding project might then be picked up by a bigger foundation and taken to scale. And there's absolutely that, that role for philanthropists to play, which I think is
0: vital. And how do you think, how can people become effective philanthropists? And how can, we, how can we make it more accessible to a new generation of high net worth individuals? Because we hear a lot about either people that have inherited a lot of money or, or you know, young millennials who've suddenly made a lot of money. How can we make it more accessible to them? Another very good question. So I think particularly coming
1: at it from the perspective of the philanthropy workshop, there are two things here to consider. So the first is education and the second is community and surrounding yourself by others who are deeply entrenched in this work. So I think it's important to note that we know that social change isn't easy. We believe that best practice lies at this intersection of strategy and trust And we know that as social investors, we need to essentially learn when to step forward, when to step back, when to listen, and when to step forward and and lead, when to give, when to give up, when to get really close and proximate to the issues, and then get out of the way for change to then take place. And I'm thinking particularly of working with communities, looking at grassroots efforts and that sort of thing. And I think this is kind of the heart of the culture for anyone who wants to be a true partner for change. So what's also critical is everyone needs to spend time identifying the values that they have, that their family has, or whatever the structure is that you're doing your philanthropy within. Considering those deeply and then thinking about how you apply those to the way you practice your philanthropy. So it's that identification that becomes then a guiding principle to seeking change. And I think what we've seen a shift in this year is... Whereas a traditional starting point for many people has been to think or make a decision around their funding areas, often based on personal interests, passions, family history, heritage, local area, what we're increasingly seeing now is a move towards people really flipping that and asking, well, actually, what I need to consider first is what does the world need most? And how do I feed into that? Yeah. So that's been a big shift that, that, we're, that we're seeing.
0: That's very reassuring, Mary Lou, because one of the things that we've been trying to get across is this idea of data-driven decision-making in in giving and in philanthropy. Generally, people have decided vaguely where they want to give and what the issue is. But you can actually go into lots of data sets, things like the NPC data set on the response to COVID. You can literally say, OK, I'm really worried about homelessness, and you can see where that's a problem, or I'm really interested in a particular area. And that's what the problem in that area is. And the great thing that we've got with Brevio is that we're going to actually be feeding that information into the funder's criteria. So you will automatically be told, okay, those are the areas that you should look at. And of course, what Brevio does is then say, okay, those that you've specified what your criteria are. And this is a short list of the, of the charities that that actually deliver on those needs that you've that you've identified. And then maybe in six months' time or a year's time, you can go back to that data and say, have we moved the needle? And I think that's one of the things that I think will make philanthropy more attractive to people who've made their own money or inherited money because, you know, they want to see where their money's gone. It's not just a sort of an emotional, oh, I want to give something, you know, lady bountiful giving out money. You actually want to be quite analytical about it. And I think that we have now got data to actually prove that. And to actually get people to start thinking in that sort of way. So it's very, very reassuring to say that people are looking at that at that sort of information.
1: Yes, they are, Marcel. And I think we're also seeing a move away from what has felt in the past like a very isolated sector. You know, people were doing philanthropy very much in silos. We know that the culture of philanthropy is, you know, it's surrounded by almost a taboo. I mean, this is money and we're talking about the UK here Mm. for whom it's a very, very sensitive topic. And unfortunately, what that does is actually stifle the culture of talking about anything to do with money. And that bleeds into philanthropy. And I think, you know, there's such an important point here around being data driven and being evidence led and also knowing where to go to get that information. So you've mentioned NPC, 360 Giving, both organizations who we um, have a deep, deeply held respect for here at TPW. But it's also having a community around you to go to to seek collaboration from, to understand what's working, what's not working, where are the learnings from failure. We know those are the ones that that bring the greatest, you know, shifts in in practice and policy. And so knowing where to go often is, is a challenge for people. And it's something we, we find ourselves increasingly do is, as an organization. We have a really kind of an incredible almost bird's eye view lens down on the sector and we're able to see what everyone's doing. And there's great value, I think, in knitting that together to bring the human relationships coupled with the data to greatest impact.
0: In fact, you remind me of one of the lovely people on My Agora who said to me one of the problems he had talking about his philanthropy is half of his friends have got more money than he has. And so he feels a bit embarrassed talking about it. And the other half of his friends have got less money than he has. And they think he's completely crazy to be giving it away. And so it has often been in the past difficult to talk to people about your philanthropy. And that's, of course, what My Agora with this, this wonderful eight or 10 people that we meet five times a year. You can be really open with them and they start talking about questions like, when do I start talking to my children about philanthropy? Do I tell when I when they're old enough to do these things? Do I say, you must continue what I've been doing or say, okay, I'm going to give you this money. You decide what you want to do. And it's all these sort of questions that Brits especially are quite reticent to talking about. And that's, I think, one of the things that, as you say, about building a community of people who are philanthropists that can actually talk about you know, the, the, the personal issues they have that to do with their philanthropy, some of the pitfalls that you get in, in working with the third sector. And, and I think you know, this community is, is so important But I think the other thing is that it's not elitist. I mean, within my group, I've got people... I mean, I'm the pauper of the group, but it never comes up. And that, that I think, is is very important to have a community where everyone is accepted. I think there's another thing I'd like to talk to you about, Meridu, which won't be a surprise, which is this whole question of grant application forms. And I've met so many people over the years. They've suddenly got more money, or they're a footballer that's got more money, whatever they say, OK, I'm going to set up a charity and I'm going to put out these giant application forms and then I'll just hand out the money. And we, I actually gave a talk yesterday, in fact, with um, a group of wealth managers. So there was about 27 of the wealth managers, the really top level ones that obviously representing a lot of, of philanthropists. And I asked them how many of you are aware of the waste of charities' time and resources in the grant making system. And that anyone who's listened to the end of the podcast has seen anything to do with Brevio, One point one billion pounds is spent every year by charities filling in grant application forms, and sixty six percent of them fail. And since COVID, about an extra hundred million has gone into UK sector, but it's actually cost them four hundred million for the charities to fill in grant application forms. And when I mentioned this to these group of wealth managers, they actually said that 48% of their clients weren't aware of the fact that they're putting charities through hoops. And how can we get out of this, Merida? How can we say to people, look, don't set up a new foundation, don't do a new garden, look at what other people are doing. And, you, and you, I don't think they realize what a percentage of the money that they're giving is going into giving grant applications for other, other foundations.
1: It's such an important point, Marcel. And gosh, my my brain is sort of spinning with a number of different things as you're speaking, because this is indeed something that we think about all the time. And if I can just remind us of the meaning of the word philanthropy. So from the Greek, it means the love of mankind. And I think something through this is, is just remembering that within philanthropy, there is a space for everyone. Each one of us can play a role within this ecosystem and you're absolutely right. It couldn't, it shouldn't rather be an elite club Mm. Tell us about trust based philanthropy. Sure. So, there's been a shift in recent months that's been really accelerated by COVID 19. And it's a trend that we've seen more in the US than we have in the UK, but it's making its way over here. And that is the idea of approaching philanthropy with a very strong trust based lens. So we heard here at TPW, we had a fantastic session recently with uh, Pierre Infante of the Whitman Institute, who spoke very clearly about the approaches that they have taken. And for anyone who wants to read more about this, you can look at trustbasedphilanthropy.org. It's all about how do you really shift the power dynamics when you come to the table as a funder? So one example that I can think of is, is sort of saying, okay, we are going to not have any unsolicited grant applications. And the reason this is this is a valid example is because often charities and nonprofits will receive tons and tons of applications, which they then go through, or maybe they don't even go through all of them. But if you look at the average amount of time that someone is spending on this, it's estimated, the estimates that we hear are around sort of 21 hours. All of those applications are going completely to waste, because actually, most often, the funder already knows who they're going to support. And so organizations who are using a trust-based approach are really focusing on saying, okay, how do we take on the, the homework as the funder? How do we take on the due diligence and say, right, we know what we're looking for. So we're going to go out, we're going to access all the public data that we can find, all the reports that are published and make a decision on who we might fund and then go to them, speak to them, get to know them and then bring them in that way. So they're almost taking that, that burden away from the organisation. And people who are doing this beautifully, um, I mean, we were sort of laughing about this, is you know organisations who will accept proposals that have been written for other um, funding groups and they'll say, do you know what? Don't even bother to change the name on this, because the point here is the work you're trying to do. It's not trying to prove something or spending ages and ages and ages on making your document look perfectly perfect to the funder that you're now applying to. The point is, what's the work that needs to be done and how do we support that? And then that goes beyond the check as well. And I think this is something that we've spoken about here at TPW, you know, a huge amount over the years of how do you go beyond that? How do you say to the funder, uh, sorry, to the grantee, what do you need from me? So at TPW, we often talk about the five T's. So time, talent, treasure, ties, tent. And there are so many things, so many more things that you can do as a funder to support the work of an organization. And something that's increasingly important is to support the resilience of an organization. So how do they really address the needs that are going on right now um, instead of possibly what they had set out originally to do? So just by way of an example would be to say, okay, if you had set an objective in 2019, would you now be monitoring and evaluating that organization against that same objective, knowing everything that's happened in between? And the chances are, you wouldn't be. And I think that's the point in taking a more trust-based approach. That also means, how do you put the charity itself front and center?
0: Yeah, it's really interesting what you say, Mary because in fact, the first part of what you were saying is exactly what Brevio does. We actually give people the access to the information. We're doing some due diligence and we're working on, on, on ways of getting more due diligence about those charities. And then we offer the funder a shortlist of the people that will fulfill those needs. So that's exactly what you say they're looking for in, in, in trust-based philanthropy. And the idea is, of course, that the charities only fill this detail in once. We only do the due diligence once, and we share it between all the, all the potential funders. And that's that's really exciting. But you know, I, I'm not the only. I'm not the only who's thinking this way. You most definitely
1: are not, um, Marcel. And we love what you're what you're doing at Brevia. And we know that this change always does take far longer than it should when the solution seems very, very sensible and very obvious. Yeah. And. What I also love about what you're doing is the level of confidence that it can bring to someone. So just particularly thinking about someone who might be earlier on in their philanthropic journey, it's so hard to know what to do, where to align yourself, where to start, where do you make that first almost like learning grant. And I think what you're doing here is creating a platform where people can go and say, okay, let me learn. Let me you know, see where these trusted organizations are. Other people are doing this. It gives you an insight into where you might want to find. It gives you ideas as well. And it's, it's exactly that. It's a sort of a confidence to step in because we know also this is what's missing Marcel, you alluded to this earlier, that we haven't seen much new philanthropy this year. And this is at a time when there's unprecedented need.
0: Yeah, we had uh, another poll from this this, um, wealth managers yesterday asked, you know, what are your clients doing? And in fact, 59% of their existing clients were giving more, 4% were giving less. 22% 22% were waiting to see what happened, and 15% were continuing with no change. And there was net zero who were giving for the first time, which I was quite shocked by. Gosh. Like, yeah, that really did shock me. But um,
1: It is shocking. I can share anecdotally that we have a small number of philanthropists that we work with in the network who had started on their philanthropic journey and really realised that gosh, if this wasn't the rainy day that philanthropy needed to step up to, then when was? And we have seen a small number of people making grants for the first times and and looking to do so in collaboration, because we're also at a, you know, a phase where people are finally leaning into that and, and stepping away from sort of saying, okay, I'm bound by my, you know, the structure of my foundation, the governance, and just saying, we've got to, you know, cut through all of that and come together. And that's again, comes back to that confidence in being able to make a grant.
0: So what do you think is gonna be different in in 2021, Mary I mean, we'd have never predicted 2020, so let's try with 2021.
1: I think we can broadly categorize what lies ahead in terms of the following needs. So the need for greater collaboration to tackle the world's biggest shared challenges, uh, particularly at the intersections of philanthropy, business, government, and society. We also need to see people getting more proximate to the issues that they're funding. So working with, building, empowering communities and their leaders to identify solutions and deeply listening along the way. There's a need for more dynamic social investing. So mobilizing resources that are currently going unspent, getting more and more people to consider how they give um, and recognizing that philanthropy could and should be for all, not just for the ultra wealthy. But at the same time, acknowledging that there is much more that high and ultra high net worth individuals could do to accelerate positive social change. And we need to see more transparency. And finally, we need to see more trust. So what does equity mean in this context, Mary Lou? Equity as a state would be where the system, so policies, practices, behaviours, attitudes, mindsets and so on, does not discriminate against someone's identity, so whether that be defined by race, gender, sexuality, or anything else, in a way that then negatively affects their well-being or their ability to take decisions. So applying an equity lens then would be the act of intentionally seeking out where the current system does discriminate against those identities, and then tries to change the system to make it more equitable. Okay. So we're going to have more of that. I'm sure we will in 2021. We will have more of that. I think we'll also have people considering the intersections of different thematic areas in a different way. So we're seeing people who have always, you know, perhaps traditionally been focused on climate change or separately focused on funding with a gender-based lens and recently and we've certainly been doing a lot of work to encourage this as well is we're saying okay but how do you how do the two intersect because there is so much impact that is felt more heavily on women and girls through climate change than on other sectors and so people are sort of coming and saying okay how do I widen my aperture? How do I really understand where the thematic area that I'm focused on intersects with other areas? Because nothing can be taken in isolation.
0: And sure. Yeah, because there've been sorry, there's been so much silos in, 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 in charities and in giving. And then you don't actually realise that you might be trying solving one problem, but you're actually causing another one. Exactly. And I think, you know, there's a systems change
1: approach that people often do apply to their work, but it, it still has a differing meaning for some people. And I think you also have to then decide, like, where is it that you, you know, almost draw the boundary around that? What's wide enough to say, okay, I have the potential to change the system, but where do I intervene? Where is that role of philanthropy? Where are the buttons that I can press to get the, break, the greatest change? And that involves an understanding of the bigger picture.
0: So in a way, what, what you're saying is that we're going to have more collaboration Hopefully, between with, between funders, because there'll be this community of funders, and hopefully people will be interacting and talking to each other about the effect, and th- and that makes it more effective because people are working together. And I, I guess in a way, that's what I'm hoping for Brevio. What what the vision for Brevio is that the funders will work together by just sharing their grant application form, and we will get a great deal of information on what's actually working, and we'll we'll reduce the waste uh, that. I was frightened to see so many wealth managers who, who, who advise you know, high net worths that they weren't aware of the way they're almost hobbling charities. Can you imagine if you're spending 20 hours doing an application and 66% of the ones you do don't deliver any, any results? So hopefully we'll, we'll get that across. And I think I really love the idea of trust because that will mean there'll be more core funding rather than being very specific and restricted funding. and And Charities know what they need. They really do. They know what the problems are, and they know what the solutions are. And I think between us, hopefully, Mary Lou, we will help solve these problems.
1: I very much hope so, Marcel. And if I can just touch really briefly on the point of collaboration again, because I do think I do think it's going to be um, a key area almost of of growth and consideration for the coming sort of 12 months. I think the beauty of community is that it creates this space for a deep cross-pollination of connection, of ideas, and also of implementation that can extend beyond just the community that you're working within and really out into the broader ecosystems for change. And I think the idea of having, you know, a community of philanthropic leaders, and you will have seen this from your agora group, and you'll have seen this from, you know, all of the the TPW um, involvement that you've had, Marcel. But but going wider than that as well, I think we we can act sort of simultaneously as one another's advisors and students, one another's accountability partners. Um, we are our own best advocates, but also our own best challengers, and that's where that sort of you know, how do we take this trust-based approach, but continue to challenge one another and continue to ensure that we are keeping our mindsets open to change and open to being shifted? And I think we can also look, well, we're going to see an increasing focus on how do we come together to co-invest? How do we become implementing partners to one another? Because we're not going to be able to meet the greatest needs of the world unless we take a more collaborative approach. Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: It was brilliant to hear from Mary Lou about how philanthropists can work with charities to create the greatest possible impact. And I really hope we do see increase in the trust that she talked about. That's it for this episode. But do join us again next time when we'll be talking about digital transformation in the third sector. I'll be welcoming both Brevio's non-executive director, Billy Wright, and Rosario Piazza, digital lead of New Philanthropy Capital, to talk about all things data, digital, and why the third sector has been slow to embrace change. If you'd like to find out more about Brevio and how your organization can set up as a funder or sign up as a charity, do head over to our website, brevio.org.